in Hamburg, because we had to work six or seven hours a night on stage with no rest, the waiters always had these pills called Preladin and various other kind of pills. But I remember Preladin because it was a big trip. And all the waiters were taking pills to keep themselves awake to work these incredible hours in sort of this, like a Vegas type place, you know, it's an all night place. And so the waiters, when they'd see the musicians falling over with tiredness or with drink, they'd give you the pill. They say, here, if you take this, you can work. You know, you, you'd be all, you take the pill, you'd be talking, you'd sober up. You know, you could work almost endlessly until the pill wore off, then you'd have to have another. I'm Richard Buskin. I'm Eric Taros. The Beatles. Naked. He was in bed already, very, very pale, 
and my mother by the time had called the doctors and um, the doctor came and said well I can't handle that anymore we have got to call the ambulance and I went with him in the ambulance to take him to hospital and uh, I, I've had the feeling something was going on and he just uh, moved up from in in the in the hospital in the ambulance and he ho he held me and then he just went up and said I'm so sorry and then he fainted and that was it and on the way to the hospital I was with him in the car he just died they found out that he had a hemorrhage in the brain which over flooded his brain and that was the cause of his death the next day I went to the airport to pick up Mrs. Sutcliffe who flew in then from Liverpool but at the same time uh, John Paul and Pete were waiting to pick up George and uh, Brian Epstein from the airport who are who had the same plane as Mrs. Sutcliffe so George already knew that Stuart died but uh, when I arrived at the airport with Klaus uh, John and Paul and Pete were there already wait for George and Mr. Epstein so they were all jumping up and down and cuddling me and being pleased to see me and uh, we just sort of turned around and said hey Astrid you know where's Stu and she didn't sort of you know keep it back or anything she just turned around and said that Stuart died a couple of days before we actually got into Hamburg Pete just bursted out in tears Paul was just holding me you know in his beautiful way and John just freaked out John kept his emotions to himself you know he had this hardcore image uh, which had transpired, you know, getting to knock around with him in Germany. There was a very tender and loving side of him. On this particular occasion, he couldn't contain those feelings. And it was the first time I'd seen John physically break down and cry. He completely freaked out. He freaked out as far as just laughing until tears came. A lot of people have turned around and said, and they've read things which turned around and said that John laughed hysterically, right? He didn't. John cried, he broke down and he sobbed, right? I was there, I saw it happening. I've seen the hysterical laughter a bit before, but John actually crying in public over the loss of a friend, that was something which is gonna stay in your imagination for a long time. 11th April, 1962, the starting point for John to go off the rails. He never had it easy dealing with loss, did he? No, and this is really the best documented uh, version of it, I think, and one that we can relate to a little bit, and it's a pattern that's going to be in all of his, for the rest of his life, obviously. He never got good with, with dealing with loss. The whole thing of this show, actually, is how this is a kind of foreshadowing of what's going to happen just over a decade later when John goes to L.A., in effect loses Yoko's presence and goes completely off the rails again. Yeah, similar formula. I guess everyone, we're all creatures of habit, and that one's certainly much better documented. Lennon wasn't making the papers, in a sense, in 
in Hamburg. But this idea of what Stuart meant in his life, and, and also I think that the dynamic of, uh, I, I never understood, I, I got to know Stuart, when people ask me, and I'm sure you know this, but people ask me who my favorite Beatle was, I usually say Stu Sutcliffe. He's somebody whose presence I've felt in my life since I was little, since I didn't even know who he really was, and that's a, a much different story. But the complexity of the relationship, I think, um, and the jealousy that, say, Paul McCartney had, um, he and Stuart really did not get along very well, and um, I, I think they were both sort of vying for John's attention. Well, in fact, by the time of Stuart's death, you know, when he learned about it, Paul felt absolutely terrible because even the last time he'd seen Stuart, he'd been mean towards him. And now he was basically persona non grata with Stuart's friends, apart from the Beatles, but anyone else who loved Stuart really didn't want to see or deal with Paul. And I think that's even later on. I remember having a discussion with Pauline, his youngest sister. And um, I know when the, when Anthology was going on and she had, you know, they were clearing certain things. You know, they got a paycheck for Stuart's contributions for being, you know, in Anthology. And I always remember she always did seem a bit distant about Paul, and she she wasn't too impressed. And she she sort of explained it away by saying, "I just remember the guy sitting in my mother's kitchen having a cup of tea, so I can't get all that worked up about him." But you know, she didn't go into any of this stuff. I learned it from you know Mark's books. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, and what should also be pointed out is that while Paul was constantly on Stuart's case, you know, about his bass playing and taking the piss out of his girlfriend and all the rest of it. John laid into him as well, you know, and it, so he, he was getting it with both barrels. It wasn't just from Paul. And that's a very John thing as well, right, to kind of stir things up a bit and then pull back. And and if Paul is attacking Stu, none of the other Beatles are going to get in the way of that. You know, they, they would all just let one person kind of do his thing and they would just stand by and watch it. Well, that does play into that whole thing. Everybody says what a, a dual-edged personality he was like it was great to have him as your friend and he'd love you and but at the same time he'd be very cruel to you you know he just um he had some real deep issues uh it's so interesting that a guy like him you know could communicate to the world in a sense and had such trouble with you know interpersonal relationships it was you know difficult um to be his friend as well as rewarding <laughs>
I think it's in the Playboy interview in 1980, certainly one of the 1980 interviews. He says about how, you know, he had a very good upbringing. He had those five strong women in his life, the Stanley sisters. And, you know, that things were okay. But clearly they weren't. You know, we can see the hurt in him from the loss of his mother, the absence of his father, and actually the absence of his mother as well for much of his, you know, early life. And it always has repercussions, that kind of stuff, okay? Um, You know, in 73, is it, when he's in L.A. with Mei Pang and that infamous night at the Troubadour and the aftermath when he's basically manhandled by Phil Spector's bodyguard, he doesn't have his glasses on and he's out in the street barefoot and howling like a wounded animal, according to Mei, and sort of crying that no one loves me. And I think, you know, that, that, that is the real inner demons coming out. Yes, and usually through, you know, excessive uh, self-medication. Uh, certainly in, in Hamburg, you know, you read the stories. <laughs> they're really quite incredible about just how squalid they even made themselves live. I mean, they almost put themselves through this hell yeah. for whatever reason. And, uh, and you know, the self-medication was prellies and, and drinking, uh, you know, at least at that time. So uh, mm. Prelli is being Preludin, right? Just for those yep. people, uh, which was a a legal in Germany, but not legal anywhere else. Is that safe to say? Yeah, uh, little was a white diet, pills, little white, di- yeah, and um, it was a you know for losing weight, obviously with speed. But of all of their Hamburg engagements, this should have been uh, Lenin as the conquering hero. And I think he expected that to come back. I think he wanted to impress Stuart the way he probably wanted to impress Yoko. And then all of a sudden, there's, as you say, this unexpected loss, and he takes it very personally. Well, it's a massive loss because Stuart was one of the people that he really did open up to emotionally. Never better illustrated than in that letter that he wrote to him in which he said, I remember a time when everyone I loved hated me because I hated them. So what? So what? So fucking what? I remember a time when belly buttons were knee-high, when only shitting was dirty, and everything else clean and beautiful. I can't remember anything without a sadness so deep that it hardly becomes known to me, so deep that its tears leave me a spectator of my own stupidity. So his manic behaviour on this third trip to Hamburg, when they are the opening act at the brand new Star Club, betrays the fact that he's really hurting inside, and... His reaction is to assert himself even more powerfully when he's at his weakest. Yeah, it's almost like he's tempting fate. You know, like he's on the surface, I think maybe to get through every day, he believes what he's saying. And there is evidence, of course, that he could just move on from things Mm. uh, without much obvious emotional attachment. But obviously inside he was a different person. And that's why he could write such diverse material is because he had that in him, obviously. And and in the case there, it was kind of interesting. Uh, he, he always found substitutes. <laughs> you know, L- Lennon seems like he had a formula. And, uh, and when he no longer had Stuart there, and, you know, very abruptly, uh, his, he had a, a, a young fan back in Liverpool who was very, very bright, articulate woman. I think her name was Lindy Ness. And uh, she was, you know, very young. I think she's 14 or 15 at the time. And she became almost the Stuart uh, surrogate. He would apparently, a lot of the the Beatles were very, very loyal to their Liverpool fan base and wrote to them postcards, letters if they knew them better. And 
a sort of organic fan club grew up around one of the coffee bars back in Liverpool. And, and part of it, I'm sure, was part, you know, they were afraid that everyone in Liverpool would forget about them and that they sort of have to start at the bottom again when they came home. Right. Of course, that was not the case. But uh, this girl was part of that collective, as far as I remember. And uh, so instead of being informational, oh, we had a great gig last night, whatever, uh, Lindy would get these word plays and, you know, the, the sort of stuff that he would go back and forth with Stu, you know, almost like the Daily Howl. And uh, and she she was not only happy with that, but sort of encouraged it and would write things back to him. So it, it's... Yes, he could move on, but he couldn't move on. He needed to fill that role with whomever was able to do it in life. And in a sense, now that Stewart is gone, and John spoke so little of Stewart when you think about it. I mean, it's like the one little paragraph or something. And I, uh, Well, actually, that's right, because amazingly, um, in something that Mark Lewison ascertained, and we're going to be quoting quite a lot from tune in the the extended edition, the deluxe edition of that book um, in this show because he came up with so much fresh information via his own interviews and his own research. And what he basically came to realise was John only ever mentioned Stu, you know, in an interview once. And that is because he was only ever asked once about it, you know, which is amazing. I mean, it's not as if no one ever went to slightly touchy subjects with him, but... For some reason, no one ever asked him about Stu, apart from, I think, Hunter Davies. And what John said was, in 1967, I looked up to Stu. I depended on him to tell me the truth, the way I do with Paul today. Stu would tell me if something was good and I'd believe him. And that's basically it. Klaus Vormann observed something very similar. Yeah, what he actually said, and this was to Mark, John looked up to Stuart. It might not come across that way, but that's what I felt. And Stuart looked down to John, not in a bad way, but natural. John was more on the funny side of life, making jokes all the time. And while Stuart could be funny, he was also serious about things. I've seen the letters between them, and you get the feeling of a wise man talking to somebody who's a little helpless. That was Stuart and John, respectively. And once again, uh, a lot of clowns, a lot of natural clowns are people who are masking um, tremendous pain and no tremendous pain. And it's, you know, uh, laughter is the best medicine and uh, does release that sense of endorphins or whatever the chemical is in your body and makes things a little bit better. And I think the more loss that John uh, sustained the more he was driven to do wild things to make himself laugh and others around him just to just so that he didn't have to deal with those thoughts and i'm sure he thought about stewart a lot and this loss yeah when you sort of said the thing about john's reaction being to maybe you know go even more wild in his behavior klaus was present when the beatles opened at the star club which was oh. the following night the beatles were on stage and john was making it into a real circus he was coming with a big big piece of wood on the stage and he was knocking everything over and he was cleaning the microphones and putting on a women's uh, uh, like a cleaning woman he was going around pushing stuff around he was just going nuts and i definitely felt this was john's way of coping with his loss that sense of inappropriate humor all his life. I mean, it always happened, didn't it? You know, and yeah. even some of the, 
little drawings he would draw for people. He was always expressing this outrage or expressing his pain through mockery. You know, yeah. mock the devil and he shall run from ye. I think it's a biblical passage. George would be very proud of me for saying that. Anyway, um, so I think that really was one of his coping mechanisms, and it got turned up to 11 for this period. Yeah. Here's Mark Lewison reading for us from Tune In. There will be quite a few more Lennon incidents to come, enough to form the impression of a young man derailed by the deaths that kept afflicting him. In a time to come, he might have been diagnosed as suffering post-traumatic stress disorder. But in 1962, such terms didn't exist, therapy wasn't offered, and the only pills were little white ones called prellies. Not every account of John Lennon in Hamburg in spring 1962 shows a damaged individual. His many letters back to England mix wit, warmth and sharpness, and are mostly typical of those he wrote at other times. I'm one of those out-of-sight, out-of-mind people, he once said. I've got a built-in resistance to sorrow. I forget things the next day, which is lucky. This, though, is belied by his behaviour in Zank Bowley, which was that of a troubled individual. He was fortunate to be in one of the few places in the world, the only one in his world, where he could be Lennon without landing himself in much trouble. For three months, Brian Epstein had had the Beatles putting miles on the clock, spreading themselves further from Liverpool. But for the next seven weeks, give or take the odd excursion, John and the others would spend their lives on one short stretch of neon-lit Grosser Freiheit, playing, sleeping, eating, drinking, pissing, shitting, shouting, loving, preaching, puking. Right down and cry over you. I'm gonna sit right down and cry over you. And if you ever say goodbye, and if you ever even cry, I'm gonna sit right down and cry over you. I'm gonna love you more and more every day. I'm gonna love you more and more every way. very tempting to play a lot of the Star Club album when we're talking about the Beatles in Hamburg. It did take place in December, and we're really talking about the spring. 
Yeah. There's so many parallels to the lost weekend that we we know about in in the 70s. There's one story that really uh, it was a great parallel to me was this one where they're playing cards, apparently. And I'm, I'm trying to remember the name of the band, uh, but somehow uh, John, one of the guys passes out, I think, at the table and John pours some water on him. And when the guy gets wakes up, he's obviously pissed off, and he gets some water and pours it on John. John yeah. apparently grabs a bottle and just smashes it over the guy's head. Absolutely, yeah, and, and doesn't apologize, but the look on his face was one that he knew immediately he'd overstepped the line. Everyone left the card game, left him on his own. Yeah, kind of, yeah, abandon him. Well, something kind of like that. I mean, not just everyone knows the Troubadour incident. There was a weird incident that happens... That happened in the uh, in in the last weekend in Los Angeles, where there was a lot of drinking and drugs going on. I mean, obviously, you've got a house with Harry Nilsson and Keith Moon and John Lennon, and you know what could possibly go wrong. And so, there's this great sort of story about Jesse Ed Davis. You know, John is going to the refrigerator to uh, to get a Coke, a bottle of Coke, which. You remember what the traditional bottle of Coke was like in the 70s. It was it was not the plastic thing we get now. It was a bottle of Coke, like the Mexican Coke bottles almost that, you know, are sort of a, a treat these days. Yeah. Um, and Jesse Ed Davis, for whatever reason, out of his mind on something, bit John in the rib cage, like bit him, to, didn't break the skin, but uh, I know May Pang said that she could see the perfect impression of all of his teeth in his skin. Wow. This is through a shirt. And this is, he just came up without warning, apparently, and bit John. So even though this is a guy working with John, and John will work with, you know, for, you know, his next album, I guess John just has the bottle of Coke in his hands. He just whacks him off the head and knocks him out cold. And apparently, anybody else would be concerned, horrified, whatever. Jesse Ed Davis's wife goes crazy. She's screaming, you've killed him, you've killed him, all of this stuff. And what does John do? He goes, nah, he's not dead, and he... This is his friend, right? He's, no, he's okay. And he pulls out, a, I guess, a carton of orange juice and just pours it on him. And then Jesse started to come back to life. And he's like, yeah, see? You know, same kind of thing, though. You just don't think of Lennon as being capable of being so callous. Mm. Um, and his reaction, you know, was very, very violent. To, to up the violence, you know, um, by 10 or whatever. If You know, the reaction of being bitten, maybe you kick the guy or punch him, but you don't try to kill him with a Coke bottle. And I guess that's kind of... There must have been this editing thing in, in his brain where he just didn't care. It's It seems self-destructive. It's almost like daring somebody. Well, or he wouldn't admit to it. I mean, the I mean, there's clearly deep anger. And without us being psychologists, I would say it's not a giant leap to say that the anger is based in deep hurt. All right? That, you know, comes from early on. And it's always there. And when he has a drink or he's speeding... Out it comes, and it comes out yeah. really badly. And then afterwards, from what I've read, in some cases he did feel bad, but he was never going to admit that. He was never going to, you know, he looked it, the hangdog expression, but would never come clean or apologize for it. But he did, he did let some people see his vulnerability. And it's interesting that Astrid, who had a very uneasy relationship with Stuart's mom, Millie, yeah. um, would write letters... Uh, after Stewart's death, they sort of forged a relationship. Yeah, I mean, really what it was about was that she was German, and this wasn't long after the war. And absolutely, for, you know, her son to be consulting with a German, a lot of people wouldn't have liked that, and Millie was one of them. It's interesting, too, how does John deal with these emotional swings? 
John was a bit of a manipulator. And I a wonder... Bit. <laughs> a bit. He manipulated Tony Sheridan into having an all-out fistfight with Pete Best and managed to never get involved himself. I, it seems like he did that a lot. I mean, yeah. he, that he would create these things. Uh, but but I like to be... I like to be civil. Um, I wonder sometimes, because it seems like only Ostrid wrote about John crying his eyes out. And, uh, you know, John and Ostrid had an affair. So... Uh, I wonder if some of that was showing, you know, this was a device. You know, John, it was always John who was singing those songs like, like uh, Anna, you know, about, you know, the, the, the wronged, hurt man, you know. Mm. Even though he seemed to be so the, I mean, he was hurt by life in a sense, but it didn't seem like a whole lot of women blew him off. It seems kind of the other way around. Yeah, but look at his insecurity with the women. Look at his insecurity, jealous guy, and look at him with Cynthia. How, you know, at first she couldn't even look sideways at another person without him getting aggressive. Yeah, he must have. Well, it is, it's fairly easy to see through interviews. He did have a very uh, almost uh, two opposites. He was really very dichotomous look of, at his own life. He's very disparaging of himself as a, as a talent sometimes. And then he'd be bold about, no, the Beatles were the greatest thing ever. I, I'm the great, you know, I am the Genius greatest. Genius is pain. Genius is pain. Exactly. But he, at the same time, would say, well, but, you know, I'm, I'm just a primitive guitarist. I, I can just, I know enough to express myself. So it, it's kind of weird that he had these two forces, you know, that seemed so diametrically opposed at war with himself all the time. And while he's out there, you know, bonking every gr German groupie he can find, he's writing these romantic letters, you know, oh, I miss, 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 miss you, Cynthia, yeah. if only. And you know, if he missed her so much, maybe she should have come out the way she had visited on the previous trip. Well, she w they weren't allowed to on that this third visit. The, the girlfriends Dot and Sin weren't invited out. Oh, they would they would have had to wait in line apparently. Well, yeah. Uh, there was another stunt. Did you did you know about that story that I guess Paul was in bed with one of his German girlfriends and John just came in and decided, uh, I guess, in a state, and he took all of the girls' clothes and cut them up into little bits. And oh then yeah, he, started stabbing uh, he had stabbing the warden. Yeah, he had yeah. this knife, and George actually said, "You know, we were actually terrified he was going to kill one of us." And yet they still loved the guy, and, and they yet stayed they still, there. Well, you know, they're all there's a dichotomy in all of these guys, right? I mean, they could be, as we know, charming, and then we know the stories of them being anything but charming. When Stu died, not only they didn't go to the funeral back in Liverpool. They didn't even send any condolences. Nothing. Absolutely zero. Oh, but Brian took care of it. He sent uh, funeral flowers and added their name to that. But but I'm right. I'm, but I'm sure everyone could see through it. It's kind of like when John beat up Bob Wooler, and there's that telegram that you can see, with his apology, which is obviously not written by John. It just right. doesn't have his sentence syntax in, in any way, shape, or form. Well, when when John commented on it to Hunter Davis, he said, "I battered his bloody ribs for him." which didn't sound like much contriteness going on there, right? He did, in an interview towards the end of his life, say, without naming Bob Wooler, that, you know, once nearly beat this man to death and realised, you know, that you know, people were pulling me off, that I was really close to killing someone. So obviously didn't feel good about that. He was hitting him with a shovel, apparently. And and on and I actually spoke to Bob Wooler about it once, and he he would not let, allow me to tape the conversation, but he he gave his side of it, and he took. Uh, there were certain things when John was with drink, as and that was the first thing Wooler said. He goes, everybody was 
plastered. Everybody was very, very drunk. And what he did was to announce John coming in, in a sense, uh, and and because he was announcing everyone and, and making a joke as they walked into Paul's birthday party. And he, he said, oh, John's here. I guess the honeymoon's over. And this was after, uh, you know, John had just gone off to Spain with uh, with Brian, missing the birth of his child. See, it's once again, this idea, his his wiring emotionally was so strange, like he just couldn't deal with this idea of having a child, I think, or watching it or being there. And strangely, he goes off to Spain, you know, with with Brian in what some people saw as a manipulative move to get one up on the rest of the group with with their manager. Um, but but that hot button issue of of Bob Wooler, who was gay and everyone knew was gay secretly because it was still a crime then, this gay guy basically saying, hey, you just went off to Spain with another gay guy. That means I guess you're one of us, subtly. And Lenin was not, that's, they pushed the wrong button. And I think that happened throughout, you see that same thing, you know, here earlier in 1962, where just somebody hits the hits the wrong button and, and he's got chemical-induced madness. <laughs> You call me your baby When you're holding my hand But the way that you hurt me I just don't understand Well, you say that you need me As an ocean needs sand The way you deceive me I just don't understand Well, you know that I love you More than anyone can But a one-sided love I just don't understand
But getting back to what I was saying about their reaction, you know, which was really a kind of totally unfeeling reaction to Stuart's death as regards Stuart's family back in England. But we know the pain that they were actually feeling over it. So it's not as if they were just brushing it aside, OK? I mean, they really did feel the pain. And yet, they're not going to express it to his loved ones. It's strange. It's just how they were. I, I wonder how much of that is the tough rock and roller image. Uh, I think Stewart could get away with being more sensitive because he was a rock and roller, but he was an artist. And I'm trying to put myself back in those mores. But, it, but it's the... still strange, isn't it, Eric? I mean, even if they're being tough rock and rollers here, this is a personal thing. This is amongst friends. You know, this isn't in front of the public. I think they expressed it to Ostrid, and I think they saw Ostrid yeah, as, they as the real family. I, I just don't think that Lennon could deal with people's mothers. Do you know mm. what I mean? I, I, I don't. <laughs> well, they, they couldn't deal with him. No, and I think he knew he was unpopular with Millie because he was the the one that dragged Stewart or basically convinced Stewart to. He's the Pied Piper who brought him to Germany where she hated. Uh, Stewart abandoned his final year of art school, which she hated, and now he was going to relocate with a German woman and live in Hamburg. That's all John Lennon's fault. So I I can see why he, you know, what's he going to do? It's kind of like Paul apologizing after being an asshole to Stuart. John didn't know how to own up for his actions. I think he took him a long time. You know, when you think about the confessional interviews he does later uh, when he, in 1980, you know, towards the end of his life, where he's saying, you know, I was a violent man that had to learn how to be peaceful, mm. uh, how to not hit women. I mean, he, you know, he hit Yoko, he hit Cynthia, he apparently whacked his girlfriends around. I know that how horrible that sounds in today's context. What's even more horrible is that was accepted. Um, there was a lot of spousal abuse, um, certainly in the generation I grew up in. We, we were aware it was going on in our parents' generation, uh, and it was quite common. And thank God, as bad as things can seem today, thank God we've moved beyond that. But I think it took Lennon a very, very long time to, uh, to be able to be a publicly tender person without there being some sort of motive. Right. Now, when you talk about violent person, you know, you've got the Fascia brothers in Hamburg. You've got Horst Fascia, an ex-boxer, who's basically the heavy for Manfred Weisleder at the Star Club, and his brothers, Uwe and Freddy. I guess the, the, young, the smallest, the, the, the youngest one was Freddy, who was the smallest one, who, who apparently, since he was short, his, his weapon of choice was to headbutt people. Absolutely, yes. Perfect, eh? Launch himself. You know. <laughs> he had to stand on tiptoe to, to nut them, basically. And, you know, their job all the time was cleaning up the mess that John was creating in his wake on this third Hamburg visit, you know, calling the, the old audiences fucking Nazis on a fairly regular basis, and also, apparently, getting bailed out of jail. One of the incidents was the infamous dressed up as a gorilla episode. Here's Horst Fascher. Weisleder went in that time also sometimes to Africa to make underwater uh, uh, movies. And uh, he brought also in that time Arab clothes and a monkey skin from Africa. So he came one night very happy downstairs to the star club and said, look, I brought all that clothes and maybe it's a fun when you were on stage. And the Beatles said, yeah, oh yeah, we wear it, we wear it. Yeah. And they went on stage and that night all in Arab clothes and Lennon was playing a rhythm guitar and 
in, in that monkey, monkey uh, uh, skin. Then uh, after the show, they didn't took it off. They went on the street with that. And also, where they were on stage, John, he didn't wear the hat from the monkey. But after they were off stage, he were wearing that hat, you know? And uh, he was in the start around, he, he scared people and girls. He start, you know, like he wants to kiss a girl or something like that. And they were all screaming and things like that. And then all of a sudden, they went out the club and they went somewhere, what I didn't know, but I only find out later on that the police called me up and said, listen, do you get some four crazy guys working in a style called the Beatles? I said, yeah. Yeah, they're here in the Davidswache, that's the police station on St. Pauli. I said, wherefore? Yeah, they said, uh, they went to a club and they scared people to death there because the crazy guy who wearing that monkey suit were jumping on the table and were screaming like a monkey, doing acting like a monkey. And people were running out of the club, especially girls and, you know, and women. And they didn't pay the bill. So the owner charged them for paying the bill what the other people didn't pay because they ran away. And they didn't have the money to pay it. So I had to go there and pay the money. And, you know, they could go out and nothing else, you know. Another hundred marks there. No, I was, no advice were paid that. And he took it off. <laughs> there was a lot of enabling that went on. Lennon was a very lucky guy in, in a lot of ways because uh, when you, this guy Manfred Weisleder was a bit of a gangster, or at least he had uh, ties to that world, you know, sex, pornography. I mean, it, it's certainly an intimidating area. I'm sure it was really intimidating um, in those days. I, I would also direct people, if you're interested, there was a film called Mondo Cano, uh, which was oh, the yeah. first of the Mondo films. Uh, that that week that the Star Club, you know, within within that summer, they were actually down there filming, you know, the the debauchery in in um, in the Grossa Feihard, and they were actually there when you, you can actually see the Star Club sign. It's a beautiful little bit of color film, and they take you into the bars along the street, and you see the drunks and staggering around. So it really gives you the most accurate snapshot of what the Beatles were living, what the, neighbor, what the people in the neighborhood, you know, these are the people in the neighborhood. Um, you get a real interesting snapshot. So like I say, if you, if you can access this online, it'll give you a really interesting picture. What a pity that the Beatles didn't walk down the street while they were filming this oh, thing. Oh, I've thought about that many times. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Can you imagine? In color. And so the thing is, is uh, so, so Vice Letter... Uh, everyone knew who worked for him. Apparently, you were given a little pin, you know, that said that you were, you know, employed by the Star Club, and that was basically a signpost. If you got into trouble, everyone knew you. Everyone knew Vice Letter would would take care of. It. So if you mess with this guy, if you beat this guy up, you're probably gonna have no teeth, you know. <laughs> so Lennon, I think, knew this, and once again, he can use this to just push, push, push. How far can he go? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, on the other hand, and you alluded to this earlier, you know, there was the other side of him. I mean, while he's out of control, he's not out of control 24-7. And in the letters that he's writing to Cynthia, you wouldn't even know anything was awry. And it does bear reading this letter that he wrote to Cynthia after she'd moved into a room in Liverpool and Paul's girlfriend Dot might be joining her, which he was none too keen about. Um, and he wrote this 
Fantastic letter. Dear Sin, I love, love, love you, and I'm missing you like mad. I haven't seen Astrid since the day we arrived. I've thought of going to see her, but I would be so awkward, and probably the others would come as well, and it would be even worse. I won't write any more about it, because it's not much fun. I don't like the idea of Dot moving in permanently with you, because we could never be alone, really. Can't she have the other room or find another flat? Imagine having her there all the time when we're in bed. And imagine Paul coming in all the time. And especially when I wasn't there. I'd hate the idea. I love you, Sin. The boss of this place is a good skin. We're off tomorrow because it's Good Friday and they can't have music. So the boss, Manfred, is taking us and the other group out for the day in his car and all the rest of them, like Horst, are coming so it will be a big mob in four or five cars. We're going somewhere healthy like the Ostsee. Stuart again. God, I'm knackered. It's six o'clock in the morning and I want you. Boo-hoo. I hate this place. Three days later, he continued the letter. But I like how when he's basically trying to sell her this idea that, you know, that we shouldn't be going along with this, he immediately follows it with, I love you, Sin. Of course, manipulation. Yeah. <laughs> what does so, she want to hear most? I miss you, I love you, right? Right. So three days later, he continues the letter. We went out, but all we did was eat and eat and eat. It was all free, so it was okay. We drove somewhere about 80 miles away and ate. My voice has been gone since I got here. It was gone before I came, if I remember rightly. I can't seem to find it. Ah, well. I love you, Sin Powell, and I wish I was on the way to your flat with the Sunday papers and chockies and a throbber. Yeah. Oh, yes. I forgot to tell you that I've got a gear suede overcoat with a belt, so I'll look just like you now. Paul's leaping about on my head. He's in a bunk on top of me, and he's snoring. I can hardly get in a position to write. It's so cramped below stairs, Captain. Sure up, McCarty. Grunt, grunt. I can't wait to see your room. It will be great seeing it for the first time and having chips and all, and a ciggy. Don't let me come home to a regular smoker, please, Miss Powell. I love you, Sin. I miss, miss, miss you, Miss Powell. I keep remembering all the parts of Hamburg that we went to together. In fact, I can't get away from you, especially on the way and inside the seaman's mission. Boo-hoo. I love, love, love you. Did I tell you that we have a good bathroom with a shower, did I? Did I tell you? Well, I've had one whole shower. Aren't I a clean little rocker? Hee-hee. I love you. I haven't written to Mimi yet, but I know how to send her money so it gets there in two hours. Will you send me the words to a shot of rhythm and blues, please? There's not many. I love you, I love you, please wait for me and don't be sad and work hard and be a clever little sin pal. I love you, 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 I love you. Right soon. Ooh, it's a naughty old Hamburg we're living in. Ooh, with that, what a closing line there. Yeah, naughty... I mean, that's hardly putting her mind at rest after he's asking her to wait for him. Of course, and she knew him. She knew what she was involved with, I'm sure. You know, all these girls did. <laughs> You know, yeah. so it's it's so interesting. Yeah, he was a manipulator. Well, if your hands started clapping and your fingers started popping and your feet started moving around, and if you start to swing and sway when the band starts to play, a real good way out of sound. And if you get the can't help it, then you can't sit down. Feel like you gotta move around. Your daddy's got a rhythm and blues, and just a little rock and roll. 
There were also the Star Club barmaids who generally stayed in their own zone and kept clear of the Ritzenecker. Several were close with the Beatles. Paul was with Heike Evert, known as Goldie, and John struck up a situation with Bettina Derlian. Known to the English musicians as Big Betty, she was beautiful and massive. For reasons never definitively established, her weight had ballooned at 20 stone, 280 pounds, 127 kilos. Pete said she used to put his head between her enormous breasts. It was a nice way to go deaf for a few seconds. And Bettina herself always spoke of the way Paul got her to comb his hair every night again and again and again. But John was the love of her life, her special one, and rumours about them became the talk of the town. Bettina's friend Rosie Weber, who worked at the Calibri bar across the street, says, So much of what people said about Bettina and John was hearsay, but I do know that John had a very strong sexual appetite and was weird with his tastes. He was attracted to Bettina because she was out of proportion. People around the scene seemed to think that the relationship was one way, that mostly it was Bettina lusting after John, but no one really knew. As Tony Sheridan says, I never thought they were lovers, but then nobody could figure them out. People would say to me, what's he doing with her? Bettina was big in every way. She had a giant beehive hairstyle, a huge personality, spoke a bit of English, had a strong sense of humour and a voice that boomed across the room, bar to stage, surfing all other sounds. She also had money buying John clothes, shoes and prellies, and every once in a while his voice would call out over the Star Club microphone, a dirty, throaty, smoky, innuendo-pregnant Bettina! In that letter to Cynthia, he mentioned that he hadn't visited Astrid yet and that it could be awkward. But actually, when she returned from Liverpool after the funeral, John and George did go to see her at of the, Ki- yeah, the Kircher family home and uh, went into the attic studio that had been Stu's. And John specifically saw this photo that she'd taken of Stu standing in the studio in the half light where he's got like the light from a window hitting him on one side and then the rest, you know, the other side of his face is largely in shadow. And he asked her to take a similar photo of him, which she did. And also photo of him with George where he's sitting down and George is standing. And it was interesting because she said that the dynamic was almost as if, you know, John was really broken up and very pensive and George was there almost as his protector, even though it was little George. But little George also had a huge thing for he he had said stated around that time that he was looking to shag her. He was also very close with I think with Stuart. There's certainly I've seen a bunch of letters. I think he wrote to Stuart more when they went oh, yeah. back to Liverpool. And yeah. uh, I you know, uh Ostra does Mention in letters back to Millie that uh, George is crying about this. He's you know little George. He's just so destroyed about all this. And and I I think it's just kind of strange that that the way they dealt with grief, you know, was yes. this kind of uh, hiding it, maybe using it as a manipulative thing, but then wanting to have sex with your your dead friend's girlfriend. It all seems a bit. Uh, strange to me, but this is how this was their natural way of dealing with it at that time. I, I of think life. I think they conveniently or no, they basically were able to separate the two. You know, 
the sex with her or having a fling with her was one thing. Yeah. Even perceive it as friendship, you know, friendship, friends well, with uh, benefits. Well, yeah, that I friends with benefits. But I mean, that particular woman, they had all of these women, you know, why her? And was it a way in, in a sense of connecting with Stuart? Is that what they were thinking subconsciously? Maybe the I male mean, ego that they're consoling her. Or or that there's a heightened, you know, they're having as much casual sex as, as uh, possible, but there's no emotion in it. And uh, this would be short of being in love with somebody. Here's a chance for sex with emotion, even though it's kind of a weird one. And I, I wonder if that was part of what it was. I mean, it's it's very odd to me, all of this. Their living conditions, the more you read about John's time in Hamburg, it makes a lot of the rest of his life understandable. And, and and certainly that when they do get to America later and that sort of sly, like the, the, the world's oldest 23-year-old, 22-year-old guys, you know what I mean? Just this yeah. worldly, we've seen it all, we've done it all. The more you read about Hamburg in that time, it, it makes sense. You're like, oh, yeah. these, these, these guys just, they were the oldest of old men when they were 20 years old. Also, you know, John and Astrid did get closer after Stuart died, not just physically, but, you know, in terms of just uh, their friendship. They spoke in a way that they hadn't spoken before. And it was during the course of one of those conversations that he basically revealed and was passing on his own coping mechanism in these sort of situations. She said to Mark Lewison, we had long, long talks about life, about relationships, about him and Stuart, about our loss. He said to me, you have got to decide. Either you die with Stuart or you go on living your life. Be honest and decide. You can't just cry all the time. You've got to get on. It was the real John talking. He said it not nice and sweet, but very straight with a strong voice. And he made me think about it. He really helped get myself together again. It was the first time he really showed his love for me. You know, for a 21-year-old, that's pretty amazing maturity, okay? And, and very down-to-earth, like she said. There was no pleasantries surrounding this. It was straightforward advice. You either get on with it or you, you die with him. And probably the voice of his Aunt Mimi. You yeah. know what I mean? I can imagine her of standing over him and, you know, for, for anything, whether it was the death of his mother or, the, or Uncle George, uh, you know, the briskness of her. That one interview you can see with her in 1981, um, you can really see what a tough customer she was. Uh, and uh, I think that's that influence that I, I can hear her saying those things. And that's probably the voice he heard in his head when he was, you know, as she said, very lovingly, uh, giving the unvarnished truth. Um, and they stayed in contact, too, because, you know, the, it's interesting how many characters from Hamburg stayed in their life, you know, whether it's Jürgen's oh, yeah. pictures or or Klaus finally realizing, you know, he Klaus wanted to be the new stew. He wanted to be the new bassist. Yeah. But he eventually became the bassist, right? So he was in the Plastic Ono band and he was in Manfred Mann and he, yeah. you know, he did become that thing. I love this letter that Astrid wrote to Millie because, again, once Stuart died, they did become closer. And uh, she was referring to Millie as mum. She would address her as mum. Yeah, which and is very it, sweet when you think about yeah. it. Yeah. And in this letter, in her, you know, not perfect English, but certainly better, better than, than my German. German. Yeah. She said, John. Oh, mum, he is in a terrible mood now. He just can't believe it that darling Stuart never comes back. He just crying his eyes out. The Beatles, especially John and George, are very good friends of Stuart. 
They try so hard to give me a bit of happiness. I never know that I had so many good friends. Cynthia writes to me all the time very beautiful letters, but John is marvellous to me. He says he knows Stuart so much and he love him so much that he can understand me. Klaus still looks after me for his friend Stuart. He never let me go out alone. George's mum hath tell him gone almost archaic English here. George's mum hath tell him all about the funeral and send the papers. I think George still can't believe it. Why can't we go for other people to heaven? John asks me that. He said he would go for Stuart to heaven because Stuart was such a marvellous boy and he is nothing. One day oh, he showed me Yeah, one day he showed me and Klaus his little room. Every piece of paper from Stuart he have stick on the wall and big photographs by his bed. Stuart Darling's funny little friends miss him so much. So that's you see the real story. Well, yeah, and that's once again where it's it's a little bit different than so the official version. Um obviously he's not telling Cynthia that he's kind of consoling her and going to see her and and and, and something had something had developed. What I was going to say earlier was that that they kept, much like Klaus stayed in their life, uh, so did Astrid. I mean, you know, she was on the set of A Hard Day's Night, and, uh, you know, there's, there's lots of film of her kind of in the background taking her pictures. She eventually did a book out of that. Going back over what you were saying before, if you put it all together, right in this period, you've got John getting, you know, closer with Astrid, let's say, and also getting really close with Bettina. It's like, you know, he For was just a reasons. character of complete extremes and they appealed to different part of his character. 
absolutely. And but both, in a sense, are something from his psyche. I really think the thing with Astrid in that last trip to Hamburg was a yearning for true emotional connection. I, I yes, he did love Cynthia, but it was a little bit different. This this had a different edge to it, I think. And and the Bettina thing is is once again kind of that strange ability for John to be so sympathetic and yet so fascinated by physical anomalies or things that other people found grotesque. Now, one story that, you know, is basically reached mythical status years ago um, and has just, you know, been embellished and embellished and embellished is the pissing on nun story. You know, from Saturday till Sunday, we had the, the club open six, 14 hours. From four o'clock in the afternoon, Saturday afternoon, till six o'clock Sunday morning. And we had to finish six o'clock Sunday morning because next, next door to the Stagler was a church. And that church was at the first mass six o'clock in the morning. So we had to uh, uh, finish the Stagler because it was too noisy there. Through the music, it was too noisy. So and uh, after the, the, the circle was finished, the most time, some musicians invited some girls or some friends across the road in their flat. And also in that time, the Beatles were living there. So we went all across the road, listening to some music or telling some stories or having some fun with the girls, you know. And uh, also uh, I went invited there and I went over there too. So on the... There was only one toilet, and we were about 25 or 30 people. So when you start drinking, you know, uh, once in a while, you have to go to the toilet. So the toilet was, was, was busy, and John, John, he couldn't go to the toilet, I think. Anyway, he went outside the balcony and started pissing over the balcony on the street. But on that time, the church people were going already to the church. And he was unlucky that he, you know, uh, uh, pissed on people who, who were on their way to the church, on, on their heads, you know. And then he found out where, where it came from because there was a lot of no noise coming from the windows there. And then they called the police and the police came upstairs and then they asked who pissed on, 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 over the balcony, you know. And then they found out it was John. But the, the, the case, was brought, brought down because uh, Weissler paid 500 marks for the people to get their, their dress clean and, you know, that was the pissing story. <laughs> Bernie Boyle, who was a friend of theirs back from Liverpool, he came over to Hamburg with Jerry and the Pacemakers and he said, I was there for the pissing on nuns incident, but I've no idea whether he hit any nuns or not. He was just pissing into the street from the balcony of their apartment on the Sunday morning as people were going to church. It could be the story was embroidered, but something happened because I saw it. John, in 1971, said... There's all big, exaggerated stories about us in Hamburg, about us pissing on nuns and things like that. What actually happened was we had a balcony in these flats and one Sunday morning we were all just pissing in the street as people were going to church and there were some nuns over the road going into the church. It was just a Sunday morning in the club district with everyone walking about and three or four people peeing into the street. 
And that's more or less what Horst Fascher says, is that it wasn't intentional. It may be that it's embellished because of something Klaus witnessed, which was uh, one day John put his clothes on backwards, like his shirt on backwards. So he almost looked right. like a priest. Yes. And he, he brought out this picture of Jesus that he embellished, Je- Jesus being crucified. But of course, John apparently very accurately from eyewitnesses uh, drew this giant penis on, on uh, the Christ figure and uh, put it on a cardboard cross with a giant dick. And, and, and uh, I think it might have been Boyle who said, well, it kind of made sense. You know, the number one guy should have the biggest dick. Uh, so <laughs> That's right. And once again, John picking on religion in the sense to, to cause the maximum amount of, of offense. So what do you do? Is you, he, so apparently, Klaus, to finish what Klaus was saying about this, is John has all this you know, stuff on backwards, and he starts preaching out to the street. Yeah. Uh, in a mock Indian accent, kind of like uh, Peter Sellers would have done. Absolutely, or or actually foreshadowing Clang in Help. Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting, and and that that idea of mocking the crucifixion, mocking religion, uh, carried on into those letters he'd send back to uh, Lindy Ness. Uh, I guess yeah. he, she sent her one letter, and there was a sort of a tiny Jesus being crucified on a large cross, and a, a, some sort of like a salesperson saying. A slightly smaller size, sir. You know, just just totally. You know, what can I do to offend the most? What can I hit at? I'd be lying on the floor behind the piano, drunk, while the rest of the group was playing. I'd just be on stage, flat asleep. You know, eating and smoking and swearing, right. and going to sleep on stage when you were tired. And uh, some shows, I I went on just in my underpants. This was in later shows that at the other club, the big the Star Club, with. When Jerry and the pacemaker and the whole of Liverpool was over there, we'd get, really get going. I'd go on with the underpants and a toilet seat around my neck and all sorts of gear on, out of my mind, and do a drum solo, which I couldn't play drums while Jerry Marsden was playing them. So we always doing gigs like that, you know, and everybody was always stabbing. You know, everybody had knives, always breaking up the furniture and just really wild scenes. Once again, how to offend people. Apparently, Bernie Boyle came over there as an 18-year-old virgin. I guess he was in the in the bar one night, and this pretty girl comes on to him and suggests, let's go to my place. And he lost his virginity to this woman who was apparently prepared. As she disrobed, she had a baby doll, uh, you know, uh, lingerie on underneath or whatever. And, of course, here he is thinking how studly he is, and then he finds out that it was Lennon set the whole thing up. Um, well, it, and he also found out that someone else that Lennon set him up with, who gave him a blowjob, was a transvestite. He took he took yeah Bernie to a transvestite bar un, unknown to Bernie that this this is a drag bar, and yeah and he goes out gets gets uh, gets serviced by somebody and finds out yeah see typical typical Lennon just just I'm gonna do something really awful to you what are you gonna do about it are you gonna stand up to me are you gonna take it or you know but this I mean? isn't a forty year old guy with experience this is a twenty one year old guy with experience who's doing it to the eighteen year old twenty one going on sixty. Yeah. I really think between all and the emotional roller coasters, he had already lost so many people that he was really more like most. He dealt with loss that most people deal with in middle age. You know, your friends, your contemporaries start to die. Your your parents die. It, it, you're much much older. You're not fully formed at 21. Your brain isn't fully formed yet. And yet, this is this is what he was thrust into, and it forged part of him. But it's it's damaged goods, and he knew it. 
he knew, uh, I think, that he was damaged goods because he would talk about it later on and he would oh, yeah. as much admit it in these letters where he'd say, I'd die for Stuart because he was so talented and, and I'm nothing. Oh, baby, 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 blues are sorrow and I love you tomorrow, just suit you just fine. Oh, baby, 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 blues are sorrow, I love you tomorrow, just suit you just fine. Forget that you told me so many promising lies. I have been trying to forget these lonesome tears in my eyes. You've broken my heart, gonna do it again. But I can't forget the spell that I'm in. Can't forget that you this point in our conversation do you know the one thing we still haven't spoken about um no the music <laughs> you oh. know we've been talking about everything else right and while all of this is going on they received the telegram from brian telling them that emi has requested a recording session for june oh, the yes. 6th and you know rehearse new material so on the one hand you've got all of this what would seem like completely unprofessional behavior going on in front of audiences and behind the scenes. And on the other hand, everything's beginning to come together for them. And I think they are mindful of they're not going to screw this one up. And um, as they, they felt, I guess, that they had screwed up the Decca tape. Right, exactly. Interesting, too, that the two songs they are, my, they are polishing and working on, one's a re, sort of reworking of something Paul... They're both Paul songs which fascinates me, you know, that, you know, John had material they could have polished up too. What was that little insecurity in John, despite the bravado, that the first two songs they're going to push for to be their first single are a couple of Paul songs? 
Well, you're talking about Love Me Do and P.S. I Love You. I am. I suppose we have to wonder, is that insecurity on John's part, who's always very assertive, who was at this point still going to be named as the leader of the group, right? If anyone's the leader of that group, it's John. So would he have been shy of asserting himself in this case? Or was it a case of just as when he had to make the decision about whether he wanted Paul in the group or not, is this going to improve the group? That was the ultimate yeah, thing that's for a, him. That, that's a good point, because if you look at the songs they chose, Love Me Do and P.S. I Love You, they were already thinking, what's in the charts now? One of the advantages of having doing this Hamburg trip with, with Brian as their manager is that he kept them informed of what was going on in, in the U.S. charts. And so Hey Baby by Bruce uh, Channel. Yep. had was had was a hit at that time so they wanted to have a uh, they wanted to be the first band to have like a harmonica a first english band to have that that type of harmonica treatment as it was in love me do and they adjusted the key of that to make it more bluesy i guess it was originally an a and then they brought it to g um and then on the on the other side of it on ps i love you they were they were starting to get into their girl group phase where they're into the cook the cookies yeah. and uh, in groups like that and so uh, I think it was the Shirelles who had Soldier Boy was the big hit at that time yes so they, so Paul's trying to write a Soldier Boy it's interesting that years later John would disparage a lot of his work by saying oh that was written to order but mm. this is where they started that process I think where it was well these are what okay the, these hooks were in hit songs that we like we can we have something that this will fit to yeah. Yeah, I mean, we can look forward to the Washington, D.C. concert in February of 64 and the fact that John doesn't make any announcements from the stage. It's all Paul or George. You know, what was that about? But I'm not so... If that was insecurity, in this case, coming back to, you know, the choice of material to rehearse for the first EMI session, I'm not sure that that was so much based in insecurity as in what he just considered would be best. Uh, and best was an interesting word to use because as part of that recording session, that was the death knell for Pete, who in, who, in this... Who certainly wasn't at his best. No, and, and had, interestingly enough, really separated himself. I didn't realize that he lived... Ve essentially, at, like it was like a nine-to-five job for him, his time with the Beatles. I don't think he really socialized with them at all. Mm. Uh, or was, it doesn't even seem like he wanted to. Right. Uh, you know, there's the, the reports of, you know, he'd go off drinking with chicks. You know, he wanted to go pick up girls and uh, he didn't want to have those guys around, you know, him while he was doing it. And he didn't really seem to fit in. But if, if there was ever a death knell, it was when George Martin said, well, after the test in June, he's uh, you can do what you want with him live, I think was the quote. But we'll use a professional drummer, you know, to keep time. And that was it with that same calculating, non-emotive uh, or unemotional response, Pete's gone, just yeah. gone. I'm, I'm not sure that John ever said another word to the guy in his life. Right. I know, I know Paul did, but I, I don't think John ever did. So maybe that is him proving that he was like, you know, he can just move on the next day. Uh, you would have thought that all of those gigs, some kind of feeling or camaraderie, you know, would have blown up. You right. Know, developed. Yes, I agree. Now, during their second visit to Hamburg, that is when Jürgen Volger. When he, Jürgen Jürgen, I like Volmer, that. Oh, that's my new stage name. Jürgen <laughs> Volger. I love it. That's when Jürgen Volmer took those iconic photos of them on stage at the Top Ten Club 
playing actually to an empty house. Um, it was behind locked doors. And then went to that doorway where, you know, John was photographed with the other three walking past photo that would end up on the cover of the rock and roll album. Yeah. And it just, you know, Mark Lewison in a beautiful piece of prose in his book summarizes what was going on here that you got in this case, a 20 year old Lennon and his mates and how they're doing something unlike anyone else at that time, you know, or apart from a few other colleagues from Liverpool, but basically, while everyone else back home just settle into regular jobs, they're having a whole different lifestyle. Here, then, is the definitive leather jacket Lennon at 20, leaning into the brick of a Hamburg doorway. His old Walton gang and quarry bank pals are home in England, studying hard and hoping to pass, slipping into careers, getting married, settling down. But he's out and about, causing a bit of havoc, drinking and getting pilled, upsetting people, singing for his supper, having a laugh and a shout with the lads, a Lennon just like the dad he's not seen in 15 years, and his dad, the first John Lennon, and of course, like Julia too, they were all here. He never wanted to grow up, Lennon, and I think he was successful in living his entire life essentially by his wits. He was the always, at the height of his fame, the first to... Uh, to talk about he didn't really like school. He never learned much at school that he cared about. Um, he learned he wanted to learn to read and write, of course, but that was it. And he was, uh, you know, an autodidact, uh, obviously very well read, but he was driven to be Peter Pan. He was driven to never grow up. Um, Yoko, he called Yoko mother and, you know, she took care of the business and he sat home and, you know, watched TV all day and wrote songs or amused himself. Uh, while she did the business. It's it's very interesting that he was somehow stuck and that that other path of life, uh, r right at that moment when he should have been joining the adulthood, he just steadfastly refused and found a way to surround himself with guys who essentially would do the same thing. And yet he always pulled himself back from the brink, didn't he? Whereas there would be so many rock and roll casualties, you know, people that he knew in this next decade, in his case, and in actually the Beatles case, you know, they always pulled themselves back from the brink. So as he would do in 74, you know, at the end of his so-called lost weekend, what was it like 15 months or something? Yeah. He basically did get his act together, obviously with help from other people, but he got his act together. And likewise here, you know, in a few days after they returned to Liverpool from their third Hamburg stint, they had to be at EMI and they had to have their act together. And that's exactly what John did, right? He just kept moving on. I always related to school, you know. I was always just on the verge of being kicked out of school, but I always just managed to come through somehow. So I rely on my own instincts to, to avoid actual falling off the cliff. You know, I'm a survivor more than a suicidal type. So I, I recognize it when I'm lying on the floor, uh, unconscious, you see, I notice it as I wake up. Oh, I've been knocked out. Okay, get into training, go back to work. Interesting that in both Lost Weekends, the thing that, after an epiphanous moment, the thing that made him focus and brought him out of a stupor or out of bad behavior was recording. 
he did the yeah. same. You know, when he finally had enough of the the second last weekend, when it finally dawned on him after the Troubadour incident, like, what are we doing? We're lying around here getting drunken in the papers. Let's do something. And he kind of rouses poor Harry Nilsson, who was in no condition due to a throat problem to, to be singing. Uh, but that's how Lenin could focus. And, and the same thing happened in the first last weekend in that he they they know that they've been in a recording studio enough times. As a matter of fact, I think they still had a contractual obligation to Bert Camford. And I think they yeah. recorded Sweet, was it Sweet Georgia Brown? And Swanee River. And Swanee River, yeah. And and they never they never came, well, uh, Sweet Georgia Brown came out eventually, but Swanee River was lost to time. Um, and it was just sort of the contractual obligation. But, I mean, they'd been in a recording studio enough times now. They were going to focus and go for it. They knew that if this didn't work out, they were in, in deep doo-doo. So, yeah. Uh, that's it, it's once again the repeating patterns of his life. Well, I got a woman way across town. She's good to me. Oh, oh yeah. Say, I got a woman way across town. She's good to me. Oh, yeah. She's good for me Oh yeah She says she'll love me Early in the morning Just for me Oh yeah She says she'll love me Early in the morning Just for me Grumbles or fusses, just treats me right. Never running in the streets, leaving me alone. She knows the woman's place, right back there where they hang around a home. Got a woman, wake up town. She's good to me. Oh, yeah. Well, I've got a woman, wake up town. One of the fantastic aspects to the Beatles in Hamburg and Lennon in Hamburg is that they are unleashed and Lennon, being the wildest of them all, 
is totally on his own trip, right? There's nothing restraining him. There's no Aunt Mimi around. He's just doing his own thing. And it, like, as I say, the same pattern repeats, you know, in 74, where he's away from responsibility and at first embraces it and yippee, the bachelor life, as he would say. And, uh, and then kind of has to bottom out with wild behavior before he finally has an, an epiphany and says, hey, if I continue on this, I'm, you know, I'm going to be as, I'm going to be like a Jim Morrison or, or, you know, Keith yeah. or any of, you know, so he finds it, well, Keith wouldn't die till years later, but, but just the same principle. He did have a strong survival instinct and music was always his salvation. And so, uh, I, you know, one thing uh, I remember desperately wanting this in an auction, um, but they had some personal effects of Stuart Sutcliffe's at Sotheby's years and years ago, one of the first rock and roll auctions I remember them doing. And in the catalog, and it, they had, you know, Stewart's personal effects, including like five or six 45 RPM records of American, you know, music, which I'm sure they wore down the grooves to the very bottom uh, to learn some songs. And I, you know, I really wanted that just to think these are the actual records that John and Stu sat there trying to learn. Um, so music, you know, that music from America was his salvation. And I guess always was. What was he returning to? You know, at in the in the last weekend was was basically touched off by his nostalgia for that music he grew up with, that American music. So it's his life was really a series of cycles, wasn't it? You know, like just it was loop. interestingly for all these stories about how wild he was on stage that we've been telling. You know, during this first Star Club stint, the Beatles as a group weren't as wild on stage reportedly as they had been at like the Top Ten and the Kaiser Keller because of the setup. At, at the Star Club, it was a much bigger stage. It was higher. They were further back from the audience. It was much more like a kind of ballroom atmosphere that, than a smaller club. And it was more money. You know, it was also a more professional gig, I think. And they were, they were already starting to head towards being the Beatles as we knew them. Well, being the Beatles, but they were always the Beatles, right? They, As we said before, they went through these different phases. It doesn't matter if they had the new hairstyles, which they were sporting, by the way, on you know, by now that they no longer were the Teds, but they were always the Beatles and Lennon was always Lennon, but maybe just never as uncensored as he was here in Hamburg. Yeah. 
The Beatles, Naked. Post-production by Richard Buskin. Theme music by Craig Bartok. to play all the tunes for hours and hours and on end you know that's why every ch song lasted 20 minutes and had 20 solos in it you know? right. but we'd be playing about eight or ten hours a night or something we and that's what improved the playing you know because also the germans liked heavy rock really rocking 